All right, well, if you're out in the foyer, I encourage you to come on in and take a seat. So like I mentioned at the beginning of the meeting today, we're glad to welcome some of our friends from C2C. And C2C is changing up their name, and they're going to become Multiply. And I'm sure if you ask Mark or Chad about that, they can tell you all about it. And uh, it's a bit of a new thing, so you might be the first people in Atlanta, Canada to know about that, except for them. It's always good to be on the inside track. So like I said before, um, Chad and Linda came around to our weekend away, and it was great to meet them there. And uh, Chad is the uh, uh, Regional Director for Atlantic Canada for C2C Multiply. And Mark Birch would be the National Director. So it's great to have Mark. So let's give him a hand as we come up here. Right on. Is that, that's good, Joel. Good to go. Yay. Hey, yeah, thanks. So what a, it's a privilege. Uh, Chad and I get to uh, the opportunity to do this across the country. Chad primarily here in Atlantic Canada. Uh, got to know Chad actually 10 years ago in India, which is kind of a cool story. But our two churches uh, that we were both part of then in British Columbia partnered together on sponsoring an orphanage. And we were on a uh, prayer and awareness trip for 21 days, something like that, in North India with he and Linda and got to know them there. I had no clue that one day we'd be working together side by side in church planning in Canada, but it's cool. Great couple, and so if you haven't got to know them, uh, their house is always open, so if you're headed to Halifax, you need a place to stay. They got lots of room. <laughs> they're, happy to, uh, they're happy to give up the master bedroom and their suite. Yes. Okay, yeah, <laughs> all right. The story of Joe Crummy sleeping on a deflated air mattress. There you go, it's good. Anyway, it is, uh, it is great to be with you, and uh, it really is a privilege to uh, be able to travel across the country and to kind of get a pulse and to see what Jesus is up to across the nation and to know that he is alive and well and he is building his church, and there are a lot of encouraging things happening, and uh, we're on about uh, a lot of the same things that uh, the values that your church is on about gospel-centered churches, spirit-led churches, mission-focused churches, and that those values that undergird uh, so much of the, the network, the family churches that you're part of, uh, we share so many of those values in common. Uh, Joel made the comment about our new name, Multiply. If you don't know who we are, it's an interdenominational church planning network. Uh, we're privileged right now to work with about 120 couples uh, from St. John's, Newfoundland, all the way out to Victoria, uh, BC, and from about 30 denominations. So that's a cool thing when you get them all in the room and you got everything from Presbyterians to Baptists to Mennonites to Wesleyans and get them all in the room and go put Jesus in the middle and quit arguing about your secondary issues and just see what it is like to exalt King Jesus together and to pray for the uh, renewal of our nation. Uh, so we're, we're partnering with those planners and uh, if you'd have interested in talking about that, it's not going to be the main focus today, would love to talk to you. If you've got a heart to pray for church planners, you think you'd like to support church planners, maybe you think you are a church planner. Uh, come and talk to either Chad and I, and we'd love to really talk about that. But it's not really the focus I'm on about today, because it's much more than church planting, uh, because the big vision is a vision for renewal and revival. And we know that that's not just a Canadian vision, that is a global vision, but this little chunk of real estate that we live on called Canada, with its 37 million people that is desperately in need of renewal and revival. And so the end goal, of course, would be to see millions of disciples made. Uh, I, I think uh, a lot of Canadians make the assumption that Canada is still a Christian nation, quote-unquote, if we ever were a Christian nation. Uh, but the stats are pretty discouraging when you actually start drilling into how many people are actively engaged in the life of gospel-centered churches. And there are still about 7 or 8% of Canadians that claim to be evangelicals, 
but only about half of them are actually involved in the life of a church, which means on an average weekend, if this is an average weekend in Canada, maybe 1.2 to 1.5 million of his really good Sunday across the country from east to west are actually engaged in their local church fellowship out of 37 million. So the need is just huge. Uh, and the other end of that spectrum is that every year in Canada, three to 400 churches, so an average of six to eight every week. So if this is an average week in Canada, there are six or eight sun- ser- services this weekend that will be the very last service for that church. Three to 400 closing their doors every year. So if we're not planting at least three to 400, we're not even keeping up with the closure of the church across the country. So it, it's about this renewal and revival and this vision for it. And the vision is anchored in a truly Canadian story. In fact, it's an Atlantic County story that I love to tell. And it's this Old Testament prophetic vision that, again, is not just a vision for Canada. It's a vision for all the nations. But it's significant that our founding fathers right here in this neck of the woods in 1864, and there was this guy, have you ever heard of a guy called Sir Leonard Tilly from just down the road in St. John? So he's with a group of leaders that we now call the, uh, the Fathers of Confederation who were meeting in Charlottetown in 1864, so three years before Canada became a nation through the British Parliament. And he comes down from his morning devotions and they're debating the name of the new nation and what it should be called. And so as the story goes, he has his devotions that day in Psalm 72 and says, gentlemen, if we get this through the British Parliament, it must be the dominion of Canada based on Psalm 72, 8. And that he, speaking of King Jesus, would have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Now, whether you know that story or not, that was your New Brunswick premier who brought that and it it has become the national motto for Canada. If you go to the Peace Tower in Ottawa, those arches are actually inscribed with Scripture, and the one on the east side of that arch is inscribed with that particular passage of Scripture. Now, some people read that text, and we're going to get into this, and say, oh yeah, that was just a colonial text. It was about the king, and he's going to take over the land, and he's going to have dominion, and he's going to rule, and they're talking. Well, it's not a dominion. It's not a colonial text. It is a King Jesus text, and it's where we're going to go. But that is the vision to see King Jesus, and would to God that we would be able to see in our day and age the rule and reign of King Jesus from coast to coast and that he would have dominion from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The need of the hour in Canada is so great and so we desperately need to see renewal and revival. So I'm going to ask you to have your Bibles, just stick your thumb in Hebrews 1. We're going to anchor it there. Uh, I was having an interesting conversation with Chad and Gary last night. What kind of preaching you guys used to is it verse by verse through books of the scripture. We're going to be all over the map. Our main text, we're going to anchor it into the book of Hebrews, but just back it up with a whole bunch of other scriptures. But we're going to read together a chunk from Hebrews chapter one, because our Canadian church desperately needs to see renewal and revival. And I think the key for that is that as, as believers in Jesus, we need a new, a fresh glimpse of Jesus. We got to get re-encountered again with who Jesus is, who he was, his finished work, who he is currently, and who the coming king and Jesus is. And so we're going to look at three aspects of who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will one day accomplish. And there's probably no better New Testament book to see the exalted King Jesus than the book of Hebrews. And if you're reading through the book of Hebrews, you see that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. So all the Old Testament law that we find so confusing is fulfilled in King Jesus. And he is now seated at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning and waiting for everything to be put under his feet. And that's really the theme of where we're going. So if you want the, the message in just a capsule, you've got it. You can turn off and you don't need to listen. So, but please do. We're going to anchor it there. So you know what? Let me pray and then let's read this together. So Jesus, I would pray that you would just speak to us. I pray, Father, for encouragement. 
uh, for the men and women, the boys and girls who are here. Lord, you know each one of our lives. Uh, you know the theme through so many of the songs that we've sung together of your victory over the darkness, your rule and reign, that you are indeed sitting on the throne. And yet, Father, it is a daily need for every one of us as we look at the world around us, uh, as we watch the nightly news, as we have conversations in the workplace and even in the neighborhood, the things that are concerning to us. Uh, Lord, we need your comfort. We need your hope. We need the stability that that brings to our lives. Father, we also need to be stirred up. We also know that in this place where we live, we have so much, the peace and prosperity relative to other parts of the world. And so often that we take for granted the freedom that we have. And there are days, Lord, when we need a good kick, where we need to be disturbed out of our comfort and our complacency. So, Father, you know the condition of our hearts today. So we just submit ourselves to you. And I pray that you would do both that work, that you would stir us up where we need to be stirred up and that you would bring comfort, a deep sense of abiding hope for those who need that comfort today. And that you can do both those works through the same message. So, Lord, we pray that. By your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to anchor ourselves into Hebrews 1, and I just want to read the first 13 verses, and then we'll dive in. So it says here that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a, a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? We're going to walk through literally a fire hose of Scripture that calls us to exalt Jesus as the King of Kings. And I want you to see three aspects of his life. I want you to see Jesus riding, and then we're going to look at Jesus sitting, and then we're going to look again at Jesus riding. So riding, sitting, and riding. And I want to suggest that that theme we already talked about of Psalm 72, 8 is actually the mega theme of the scriptures. From cover to cover, that there is a king from the line of David who would arise and he would have an eternal rule of righteousness and justice. That there will be a flourishing of humanity under the dominion of this king, like no earthly king. That wrongs will be made right and that humanity will be restored to its original glory. That this is the theme of the book from cover to cover. That it is the mega theme, the meta narrative of the scriptures. That this is where all of humanity is headed. It's an interesting comparison when you, uh, I've heard this line, maybe you have, that there's only four chapters in the entire Bible that describe life as it should be. 
life as God intended it. The first two, Genesis 1 and 2, and the last two, Revelation 21 and 22. Everything else in between is God's story of getting us back to the original glory he created us for, that we see those first two chapters and we look forward to the very last two chapters. Everything else is God's story of fixing the mess that we find ourselves in. Psalm 72 and so many other of the Old Testament prophetic passages point us forward to that day when the king will rule. And so for sake of time, I'm just going to choose three to highlight those. So Zechariah picks up on Psalm 72, 8. And it's interesting when he quotes this, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. So you pick up on Zechariah, and if you know your New Testament, you will recognize this immediately. This is a prophecy of King Jesus who comes riding into town on the Passover week before his crucifixion, humble on the back of a donkey. And Zechariah anchors this directly to Psalm 72, 8. This king, the humble king on the back of a donkey, is actually going to have an eternal rule from having dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. It's quoted in Matthew 21 and John 12. Daniel paints this picture and he says, there came one like a son of man. That phrase is critical. Came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And again, if you've read your New Testament, you'll recognize that Jesus self-identified at least five times as the Son of Man. In our day and age, it's so easy reading through the New Testament, just go son of man, son of God, and just keep on reading and not realize that to the Jewish ears, that would have been like a lightning bolt going off. You're like, son of man? You mean the son of man that Daniel 7 talks about? You mean the son of man who is the ancient of days? He's standing before the Lord and he's giving him a dominion that is an eternal dominion. That son of, you're claiming to be that son of man? Like this would have been a major deal to Jewish ears. So often we hear it go, oh, son of man, that means his humanity, son of God, that means his divinity, and we just keep on reading. It was a lightning bolt. It would be like us saying, hey, oh, hey, Kate and Will, great, glad, glad to have you here today. And you can be going like, what? Who's here? Like, look around. Like, so the son of man. All right, Isaiah. By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And again, you'll recognize it as a New Testament text. It's quoted twice in the New Testament. Romans 14 places it in the context of the coming judgment. That a king will come where we will bow before him as our judge. And he says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself before God. Isaiah 45, fulfilled in Jesus, we will bow before him as our judge. Also fulfilled in Philippians when it talks about the humility of Jesus. The humility of giving up his rights as God, taking on the form of humanity, humbling himself, even going to the cross. And it says there, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory 
of God the Father. What all of these texts and so many more point to is that there is coming a day. There is coming a day when every knee that has ever lived, every soul that has ever lived in eternity past and eternity future till the return of Christ will bow before this king. And we will bow before him either as our savior or we will bow before him as our judge. But make no mistake, every knee is one day going to bow before him. And I wanted to start there because these big picture themes are critical. They are the meta-narrative. Because I think of the time and the place that we live in, and, and, and maybe it's no different than any other generation. This just happens to be the needs of our generation. But I think in the time and the place that we live in, we need this hope. A couple of months ago, the pastor at our home church, where we attend out in Vancouver, started his message with a series of questions that really stirred my heart as I'm sitting there listening. So I'm stealing a page off of his song sheet. But he's like, what are you thinking about these days? What are you talking about? What what, what do you feel? What do you respond? What's your view on the conversations that are taking place at the workplace or in the neighborhood or over the back fence or at the playground with the kids? What do you think and hear about? Where we live, a conversation that is constantly coming up is exploding real estate prices. Uh, The idea that our kids will probably never own a house of their own. It's every week we're hearing that. What do you think about North Korea having nuclear capabilities? Do you think about that? What about the fentanyl crisis on our streets? How do you feel about same-sex marriage? What do you think about gender fluidity? How did you feel a couple months ago when Newfoundland became the first province in all of Canada to affirm a polyamorous family where two men and one woman are now named as parents on the child's birth certificate. First ever in Canada law. How'd that make you feel? What do you think about Justin Trudeau? What do you think about Donald Trump? What do you think about the Kinder Morgan pipeline? Is that news out here? What do you think about the protesters who hang themselves off the Second Narrows Bridge and protest against it? How do you respond to events like last week's shooting? The fact that the eyes of the nation are on Fredericton this week, the flags are at half-mast as a funeral is celebrated yesterday. What do you think about the Me Too movement? What do you think about the Black Lives Matter movement? How do you feel about the legalization of marijuana and the effect that it may have on our society? How did you respond when the Supreme Court ruled against Trinity Western University's appeal to have a law school. How did you respond now that Trinity has removed their covenant from their student body? How should evangelicals respond to the new restrictions on summer employment grants from the federal government? Should Christian camps, Christian schools, Christian churches violate their theological convictions in order to still access those funds? You see, these are the days that we're living in. These are the conversations we're having from day to day. And if your mind is like mine, you might find yourself from time to time wondering, how long, O Lord? Like, how long can this go on? How much longer are you going to tarry before you step in? Oh God, please, may it be soon. And you find yourself like Revelation saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. 
In Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And you're like, Come quickly, Lord. Get us back to that. Genesis 1 and 2, take us to Revelation 21, 22. Yes, Lord, today would be a very good day for that. Do you ever find yourself thinking that way? You might have heard this saying, I heard it as a kid growing up, that the gospel comforts the disturbed and the gospel also disturbs the comfortable. The gospel comforts the disturbed and it disturbs the comfortable. It's one of those both and statements. It's, it's a paradoxical statement that both sides are true, depending on which angle you're looking at. And I can tell you with certainty that most of us in this room are in desperate need of the comfort of the gospel. I'm in desperate need of knowing the hope that the gospel tells us that one day all of these things are going to be set right. That there is coming a day when under the peaceful and loving reign of King Jesus, it will be ushered in and unto that hope and unto that promise that we cry out with millions who've gone before us, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, Lord, please, on earth as it is in heaven. That this is our cry. And so when we begin with the end in mind, there's so much confidence that we have, we find in the finished work of Jesus. The Old Testament promise that this king is coming and he will secure our freedom. At Pentecost, Peter stands up and he preaches in Jerusalem and he says, declaring the rule and reign of King Jesus and saying, the Father has raised him from the tomb. This Jesus that you crucified, the Father has raised and has exalted him as Lord and Christ. Paul expands on that theme in all of his letters. To the Ephesian church, Paul said this, he raised him from the dead seated him on his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. These are great passages, but you've got to ask the question. If he is seated on the throne, if he's ruling and reigning, then why all the chaos? Why do we continue to see these things go on? And the book of Hebrews, and we're getting there now. Now the message can start. <laughs> Hebrews 2 answers this, and it says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's an interesting phrase. He's ruling and reigning. He's seated at the Father's right hand, and yet the Scripture tells us, but at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. We don't yet see things under his feet, but we see Jesus. You see, we live in what the theologians call this in-between period, the intermission between the acts of the gospel. And I'm sure you've heard this four-part drama, the gospel explained in this way, the story of God's working among us. If you can memorize these four words, you can remember enough of the gospel message to share it with anybody. If you can just remember creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, you have the gospel in a nutshell. Those four words, remember them, and you'll remember the story that God created, that we fell away from him in our rebellion, that Jesus came to redeem us, to buy us back, that his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then this future coming day, the restoration, the gospel in a nutshell but we live in that in between act three and four so what jesus accomplished what he finished in the redemption was finished and done 
We're told clearly that He's finished the work that was needed, that when He stretched out His arms on the cross and when He cried out, it it is finished, and then gave up His Spirit, that He meant it in its entirety. It is finished. Everything that needed to be done has been accomplished. Signed, sealed, delivered, past tense. We have been saved, past tense, once and for all, finished, complete. Do you believe that? It is done in Jesus. And yet, nothing we add, we live in this in-between that theologians call the already but not yet kingdom. The already, it's here, but not yet, we're waiting. And we might cry out, Lord, what are you waiting for? How much worse can it get? And he responds with patience. And of first importance, he tells us the gospel has to be preached to the world. In fact, Jesus himself told us this in Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And it's interesting that that word nations is actually the Greek word ethne, from which we get ethnic. So it's literally to every ethnic group, not just to every nation and state, the 240 some odd that there are around the world, but literally among every ethnic group, every language group, the gospel will be proclaimed and then the end will come. It's why we have work to do. It's why we need to get the gospel spread around the world. It's why church planning is so critical both here in Canada and on every continent that people who have never heard the message of Jesus would hear it. Second Peter was written to a group of, ex- uh, of exiled believers who in many ways were living in times like ours and probably even much worse. In the first century as Rome begins to turn up the heat on persecuting of Christians and they're, they're being burned as, as lights in Nero's gardens and all of these things and crying out, how long, O oh Lord, how bad can it get? And Peter writes to these people and he says, in essence, don't worry, justice will prevail. God will carry out judgment in his time. But then he says this, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And then here's the key phrase, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Like, aren't you glad that the Lord tarried long enough for you to come to know Him as Lord and Savior? That he was patient enough that somebody brought you this message, your heart was stirred, and you turned toward the Lord. And who is it that today needs to turn toward the Lord and we're so glad that he waited, that he was patient for us? That's the heart of the Father. He's patient. It's sort of the difference between D-Day and V-Day, if you know that comparison. So June 6, 1944, for all intents and purposes, World War II was finished on the European continent. Because on that day, The Allied troops land on the beaches of Normandy and etc. And they've got a foothold now in enemy territory. It takes 11 months before Europe was won. So May the next year, 1945, the victory in Europe day happens. But for all intents and purposes, the war was over on D-Day because now this foothold was won. As Jesus comes at Calvary, it is like he steps behind enemy territory and the enemy is effectively defeated. Sin, Satan, death, the grave, all of that is done and over with. And we live in this mopping up period. We're waiting for victory day to come. Hebrews is the most magnificent exaltation of King Jesus as fulfillment of of the Old Testament promise. And in this book, we saw Jesus riding humbly on that donkey in Zechariah. In this book, we see Jesus seated. 
And if you're reading through the book of Hebrews, I'd encourage you if, you, if you mark in your Bibles, every time you see he sat or he's seated, seated at the right hand, he's sitting next to the Father, circle those texts because what the book of Hebrews is telling us is that there is nothing left to be done to accomplish our salvation. And over and over you see this phrase, he sat down. And you might just skim past it and like, so what? He sat down, he's sitting by the Father's right hand. But the idea of a high priest, if you know your Old Testament, the idea of a high priest ever sitting down, ever resting, was entirely unknown to the Jewish people. The moment you see he finished his work, of the, whether it was the daily sacrifice or it was the yearly day of atonement into the Holy of Holies, the moment that he finished his work, the people are outside sinning again and they're racking up sins for the next day's sacrifice. The high priest's work was never done. Today's sins are covered over, but he knows tomorrow I got to go through it all over again. And bringing in the blood of bulls and goats to sacrifice for the sins of the people. The high priest would never sit down. The work of the high priest was never finished. The high priest could never complete his job. But the high priest in Hebrews sat down. In other words, Jesus accomplished something that no earthly priest had ever done. He finished the work. That's a good place to say amen or hallelujah if you guys do that. I thought you guys were like really like, you know charismatic and you know hallelujahs and all that like come on Gary you, you set me up for something you're just taking notes the reform side okay good now <laughs> Hebrews 10 explains this it says every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin they just cover them over for another day but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You see, Jesus walks into the holy of holies, not with the blood of bulls or goats, but he walks in with his own precious blood and he sprinkles them there on the heavenly mercy seat where God said, I will meet with you as a mediator of a new covenant. He finishes his work and then he sits down at the Father's right hand and he waits for his enemies to be mopped up. Okay, we've covered a ton of territory. And you might be wondering, where is this guy headed? Well, it's simply this. I think how desperately we need a glimpse of Jesus. I think in Canada today, as Christians today, we desperately need this glimpse of Jesus again, seated at the right hand of the Father, high and lifted up. He is exalted over the nations. He is exalted over our lives. He is seated in the glory of his finished story of redemption. We can't add to it. We don't add to it. He is seated in his glory. And what is he doing as he's seated there next to the Father? Hebrews 7 tells us he lives to make intercession for us, that, that he's talking to the Father about this. I mean, this is, this is really quite interesting. If you think of the exalted Son of God and what is He doing as He's waiting for the nations to be put under His feet, it says He's talking to the Father. He's leaning in next to His Daddy and He's going, hey, Dad, you know those people down there? Those people are mine. Those people are with me. I know, I know Lord, it's a miracle. As you look at them, you don't see them as sinful people anymore because you see them through my perfect life. But Lord, I want to pray for them. Do you know He's praying for you today? That's what it says. He, lead, he lives to make intercession constantly for us. We talk about praying for one another. We talk about exalting the Lord in prayer. But it's an amazing thought that King Jesus, the exalted King, is actually praying for you and me. Is that not an amazing thing? 
He's interceding for us. He's going, Lord, bring out the full number of those that you're calling to yourself. And Lord, I'm preparing myself. I'm waiting patiently like a bridegroom. You want a good uh, lesson on marriage? Talk about this bridegroom who's waiting patiently for his bride to be prepared for him for this wonderful wedding feast that is coming. And he's preparing a room in his father's house where his bride is going to come to live. That promise in John 14, I go to make a place for you and I'm going to come and receive you unto myself. And he's waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet and then his rule and reign will be final. Oh, to see Jesus. You see, the gospel comforts the disturbed because we have this anchor. It is a sure and secure ankle. We don't yet see all things under his feet, but we see Jesus. We don't yet see everything under his feet, guaranteed, but we see Jesus. We don't see everything under his feet, but we see Jesus. We got to get our eyes on Jesus. Comfort and hope and strength. Lift your eyes to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Get off the circumstances and look to Jesus. But here's the second half of that equation. The gospel does indeed comfort us. We need it so desperately. But the, all, the gospel also should disturb us. It should stir us up. It should motivate us. Because the day will come, we are told, when the exalted Christ, seated at the Father's right hand, is going to once again stand to his feet and he once again is going to ride into human history. And this time when he comes riding, he doesn't come like Zechariah, humble riding on the back of a donkey. He comes as the conquering, ruling king of kings. Hebrews 9 says, So Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And in chapter 10, it gives us this call to endure, for we have need of endurance for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And you see that little phrase, he is coming, should stir us up. It should cause us to sit up. You see, you imagine the conversation between the father and the son as the father is saying to him, just sit here, my son. Just sit here for a while because your work is finished. You have done your part. Well done, my good and faithful son. It is finished and we're waiting for it all to be cleaned up. I will make your enemies a footstool under your feet. The nations are going to be rolled up like a garment. What we read there in in Hebrews chapter 1. Like a robe, you're going to throw them aside, but your kingdom, your rule and reign will eternal. But just sit here for a while, my son, because I'm setting the record straight. But the day is going to come where there's one last ride you are called to make. We read earlier from Zechariah's prophecy that the ruling and reigning king would come into town riding on a donkey. And that was fulfilled in Jesus' first coming in his earthly life. We see him seated as the high priest resting because his work of redemption is done. But the scripture also tells us that King Jesus is going to ride again. He's going to ride again, friends. This is cool stuff. Revelation 19 says, And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, not a donkey this time, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but he himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Like, think of Gandalf. And he says, look to the eastern skies and the white light. Are any of you guys Lord of the Rings freaks here? Okay, sorry, it's just me. 
The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Some of you are old enough to remember the old hymn, Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That was on this text. Hallelujah, the King of kings is coming again. He's riding and ruling. And you see, I think we need a new glimpse of Jesus. And it's not just the gentle Jesus of Passover. Yes, we need the humble Jesus. We need Philippians 2 that says, if there's any encouragement, if there's any unity of the Spirit, take on yourself the same mind that Jesus had. You should be the most humble, loving servant people taking on, as Jesus did, human flesh, incarnating the gospel. You should have a humble approach to the gospel. We need to see Jesus in his humility. And we need to see him ruling and reigning sitting right now so that when life around us is in chaos, we can go, no, but my king is still on the throne. But we also need to see Jesus coming as the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the exalted one who is patiently waiting and who is going to rule the nations, who is going to appear a second time, not on a donkey, but on a white stallion. You see, the gospel should comfort us when we're disturbed and it should also disturb us when we've grown way too comfortable. There was ever a time, I believe, when we needed an awakening. Today is the day. Our nation desperately needs an awakening. We need to be praying into it. If you go back 300 years ago, 1744, a bunch of pastors in Scotland are so disturbed at the condition of the church. You think we live in desperate times. You just read the history of the church and you realize the church has gone like this. It's been like the book of Judges all through church history. And so in that period of time in in Scotland, the church was in just disarray and a bunch of pastors are like, the only thing we've got left to do is pray. So let's just start getting together a group of people. And so they made a covenant, this group of pastors, to say, we're going to call all of our churches to gather Saturday nights and Sunday mornings before the meeting for prayer. And we're going to try it for two years and see how the Lord what the Lord does. I laugh at that because in North American context today, it's like, let's try it for a couple weeks. Oh, it didn't work. They're like, let's try it for two years. And after two years, we'll evaluate. After two years, the Lord is stirring up something in Scotland. There's renewal and revival happening. They're so encouraged by what's happening. They're going, let's continue it for seven years. And they write a letter to their friends across the pond and they send it over to North America. And a guy named Jonathan Edwards picks up on this. And if you know your church history, you'll know that the first great awakening is spawned by that letter that comes from Scotland to the the colonies and saying, you've got to get on your faces and you've got to pray. And that first awakening. Go forward 100 years, 1857 in the U.S. The U.S. is in a time of racial tension. There is nationalism. There is fighting between North and South. They are just on the brink of the Civil War breaking out. They are in one of the most severe recessions that they have experienced in their history. The nation is divided and churches are in decline. And a a guy, a layman, not a pastor, not a theologian, a layman named Jeremiah Lamphere who lives in New York City decides there's nothing left to do but pray. So I'm going to take my noon hour and I'm going to rent a church basement just close to Wall Street and I'm going to start praying. I'm going to ask my friends to pray. First day that they gathered, there were four men there. The next week, there were like 10. Then there were like 20. Then there were like 40. And then there's 100. And before you know it, New York City is shutting down the marketplace for two hours over noon hour. And there are literally tens of thousands of people in New York City who are beginning to pray. And we have the second great awakening, which affected Atlantic Canada because it spilled all up the eastern seaboard and right into what we call Atlantic Canada today. And the effect of that, they said in today's numbers, it would be as if 10 million people on the east coast came to faith in Jesus, that would be per capita the number of people. 
because a layman said we got to pray. 1990, New York City was on the cover story of Time magazine as the murder capital of North America. Ten years later, in 2000, it's back on the cover story, and it's now called the safest city in North America, over one million in population. You go, what made the difference? From the murder capital to now the safest city, over a million. And if you read Rudy Giuliani's autobiography, he will tell you that it's because they had a great mayor. And he actually did a lot of great things in his leadership. But there's a story that was happening behind the scenes that I think in eternity we're going to hear more about. Because in 1989, a significant thing happened. There were two men who moved to New York City in 1989. One of them I'm sure you know about. You've probably heard him quoted uh, by your, your, your leaders as they're, they're speaking. Have you ever heard the name Tim Keller? Anybody heard of that guy? So a, a, a younger guy, Tim Keller, goes to the city of New York to plant a church with a vision knowing immediately there's no way one church is going to reach Manhattan. So knowing from the get-go, we have got to plant literally hundreds of churches to reach these millions of people and knowing that one denomination alone can't do it. So even as a Presbyterian, he's like, I'm willing to work with anybody who will preach Jesus. That was a new thing back in 1989. But there was another guy that moved to New York that probably most of you have never heard his name, a guy named Mac Peer. And he and his wife were missionaries in northern India and they felt a very distinct call from God to come back to the States and specifically to go to New York City and to start what came to be called the New York City Concerts of Prayer. And it was based on the old teachings from the Great Awakenings that if my people will call on my name, I'll heal their land. And they began this grassroots movement of prayer that is still operational today. They have never done any big flamboyant things. They've never written large stadiums. They haven't done marches for Jesus. They have simply gathered Christians to gather in small groups around the city. They give them a monthly bulletin called the Lord's Watch, built on Count Zinzendorf's 100 Years of Prayer. And there's five things that every month, five topics that they talk about to pray about. And today there are 60,000 people that are committed to praying daily for the five boroughs of Manhattan. And what you see happening since 2000 is a radical transformation of the island of Manhattan. Back in, 19, or in 2000, just before 9-11, the island was 1% evangelical. Ten years later, it had tripled to 3% evangelical. You're like, it's still only 3%, but that's a massive number of people. Two years ago, 2015, they did another survey. It's now up to 5% evangelical, and 45% of the churches in Manhattan are new since 9-11. The Lord is stirring up something in this major city. The goal now is in the next 10 years, they want to reach 15% evangelical population because that's a sociological tipping point. If you can get 15% actively committed, you can begin to influence all of culture. It's an amazing thing and it's happening in our day. My point of all this is all of those movements historically were birthed in times of desperation and spiritual drought. And like Zechariah of old, we need to hear the cry of the Spirit of God. We need the voice of the prophet reminding us. And Zechariah goes on, he says, ask for rain from the Lord. From the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Ask the Lord to make it rain, both physically and spiritually. Lord, would you rain down your spirit across our nation? Oh, to God that he would pour out his spirit in new and fresh ways. We so desperately need this. So what about you? I've... uh, I've had to get used to this itinerant thing. We spent 23 years in local church and you look across an audience and you know their stories. And you know you've been able to marry their kids, you've been able to uh, dedicate the children, you've done funerals as their parents pass on, and you know the struggles and the challenges. In a room like this, I don't know any of you. I don't really know what God's doing in your life, but how long has it been since you've seen Jesus? And do you need a fresh glimpse of him today? Do you need to be reminded of him humble 
that he was a gentle king, that he came with a towel over his arm as a servant, that he gave up all of his power, all of his authority. He could have just wiped out humanity and instead he took on a servant attitude. Do you need to see him in that way and to be comforted again? I think every one of us need to see him as the high and exalted King Jesus who is ruling and reigning. Because the times that we live in, there's a lot of things to worry about. And to see him as the one who is on the throne and he is exalted and he is in control. And we, of course, need to see that vision of the coming king, the ruling and reigning one, that one that we are going to bow before him and declare him king of kings. I love, Gary, what you had to say, that we're going to look him in the eye. That's a frightening thought, right? If you're not walking right with the Lord and you're going, I don't know that I want to look him in the eye, but the fact is I'm going to look at him and there's going to be love and there's going to be acceptance and I'm waiting for that ruling and reigning. Do you need a fresh glimpse of Jesus? You see, the finished work of Christ should be our rock-solid comfort and hope that He is on the throne. We won't shrink back. Just as we sang, He overcame, we will not be overcome. As Christ endured, He will enable us to endure to the end. He will enable us to be faithful. The desperate times that we live in, when it seems like things get darker, He is still on the throne. I think we need to be prepared. To say, what if it gets darker than it is even now? As bit by bit by bit, religious freedoms are pulled back in Canada. We we hope and we pray that it would never happen what we've seen happen in other parts of the world. But it is not beyond the pale of, of history for us to say these things could be stripped from us. Meetings like this could become illegal. You may have to gather now secretly in homes. You say, oh, that just happens in China. That just happens in India. It could happen on our soil. Are we aware of this? And even still, he would still be ruling and reigning as a king of kings and lord of lords. We need this confidence. But the coming day when King Jesus rides into town is not to be taken lightly. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess. And so that key question for us is, have we done that now? Have we confessed before him as Savior and Lord? Because either we will confess that name as Lord or we will confess it as our judge in the final day. I think this is a message every one of us needs. That Jesus has done that all that needs to be done for us to be right. He's resting. He's resting from his work. That's so beautiful. Because it means we can rest from ours. There's nothing more I need to do to merit my salvation. Jesus finished the work. And he's quite comfortably resting at the Father's right hand. It's finished. It's done. You can't serve more, pray more, give more, love more to earn his love. It's already been accomplished. You need to know this. You can rest in it. But we also stand before him with an eye on the ticking clock, knowing that this time of mercy and waiting and patience is going to come to an end and we will stand before him and every soul that has ever lived will stand before him. And then the question, of course, is what kind of lives should we be motivated to live? Is any price then too high for us to pay? Is any sacrifice too great for us to make? Oh, Father, would you give us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus? The exalted, righteous, sinless lamb who was slain, not for his sins, but for ours. And oh God, may our hearts thrill to stand in his presence. And oh God, would you let it rain? Would you let it rain? So can you stand with me? I want to pray with you and for you. I said the Lord would seal these thoughts. So Jesus, you know... You know the needs in this room, Father. You know the individual who today simply needs the reminder the great comfort and hope and security that they have, that you are sitting on the throne, you are ruling and reigning, you are indeed in control, 
And whatever the conversations over the coffee table or the workplace have been and all of the issues that we watch in the nightly news, Lord, that we lift these things up to you and we say, but King Jesus, you are ruling and reigning. And we are asking, Father, that you would make your dominion to be seen from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Father, give us that comfort, give us that hope, give us that security that there's no fear to be had in you and that we can walk with confidence through our daily lives. But Father, also lift our eyes to the coming King of Kings and the motivation that we should have to be getting the word out, to be, to be living lives of holiness and purity before you, to be serving you, knowing that you're going to ride into town victorious, that you are the ruling and reigning one, you are the coming one, and Lord, that when we get comfortable, when we get complacent, when we grow so at ease in our Western world, that you would stir us up again. Remind us, Lord, that time is running out. The time is running short. There's work that you've left for us to do. And Father, most of all, we would say, please, Father, for the sake of your name, for the glory of your name, would you let it rain? Would you let it rain around the world, Father? But we're asking specifically for Canada, Lord, would you let the gentle rains of your spirit fall down? the torrential downpours of your spirit, the floodwaters rising like Ezekiel's picture of out ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep. Let us swim in the river of the glory of God. But Lord, would you let it rain? It seems so dry, Father. It seems that our nation is so far away from you and everything's headed in the opposite direction. Lord, would you let the rains begin to fall in a new and a fresh way? We're asking it, Jesus, for your glory. In your name, amen.